Well, thank you, Andreas, and good morning, Wallenstein. Great for my wife and I to uh, be with you today. Good to see everyone in here and those joining us across at the gymnasium and those also who are joining us on home. Special good morning to, to you. Uh, yes, as Andreas has indicated, uh, our connection with, over the years, Quartz Lakes Bible School and Bible College has uh, generally been the occasion that we've had the opportunity to fellowship with you here coming with, uh, in the earlier days with the choir and then the later years with the performing arts group and that sort of thing. And so uh, many alumni over the years and uh, some that we have met already this morning, some that we recognize, some that we needed to kind of uh, reconnect with. It's been a lot of, a lot of years that it transpired. So. And uh, a special connection with Gary and, and Diane as uh, alumni of, of KLBC, and, uh, but much more than that, friends and important people in our lives. And the occasion to uh, minister side by side with Gary in administration at the school and then as a member of our faculty and then on the board and had the occasion to uh, marry them a few, uh, a few years ago. So good connection there. We appreciate them and we're so delighted when we learned that they were coming to uh, minister and serve uh, as your lead pastor and I know you're delighted to have them there and uh, you're privileged to have them and they will serve you well. Great to be with you this morning. The Bible is a book of ideas, uh, inspired ideas, inspired ideas by God, actually, but ideas nevertheless. And ideas are, are powerful things. Uh, they shape us. They mold us. Materialism, for example, is an idea. It's a powerful idea. And we see how that molds and shapes us as a culture over the years living here in in the affluent West. And the Bible contains a, a lot of ideas. I'm reminded of one of my favorite teachers who, who told us that as students, uh, there are actually, when it comes to overarching, dominant, major ideas of the Bible, there's, there's actually very few. He suggested maybe as few as, as seven. And under those dominant ideas, other lesser ideas, if you will, emerge or, or can be arranged, but relatively few ideas. Well, one of those ideas, of course, is that there, there is a God, and the God who is is the God who is supreme, and the God who is supreme has a plan, and because this God who has a plan is supreme, he gets to execute the plan. The plan, the plan comes to uh, fruition. And one of the things that the Bible teaches us is that it is best to go with God and his plan. It's better for us to go with the plan. It is better for those who go with God than for those who resist God and his plan. Going with God instead of resisting God is better for you. That's one of the dominant major ideas in the Bible and it's one of the dominant uh, ideas that we find in our passage that we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. That going with God is better than resisting God. And that's one of those truths. We grasp the wisdom of that truth this morning. It's one of those key truths that can comfort us. It can give us confidence as we look in the world around us and at times ask what in the world is happening and, and going on. It's one of those truths that gives us living hope as we face 
the future together and contemplate the future. Our sign passage this morning takes us to the book of Psalms, Psalms 2. If you have your Bible or your device, I invite you to join with me there in the text this morning, Psalm 2. Just a few background comments perhaps will help us and give us some insight as we prepare to uh, survey this text briefly this morning. And first of all, when it comes to this psalm, students of the Bible uh, observe that uh, there is a relationship between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, these first two psalms that, that form the introduction to the entire collection of the 150 psalms. It's interesting that Psalm 1 begins where Psalm 2 ends. It begins with this emphasis on the one who is blessed, or the blessing of God, and Psalm 2 concludes with where the blessing of God is, is found. And this idea of blessing serves as bookends to these two psalms. It's one of the reasons that there's a suggestion that these two psalms are actually one unit. That may or may not be. A Jewish rabbinical tradition indicates that they were and held to that. Nevertheless, there is this close, close relationship. For many of us this morning, we're probably more familiar with Psalm 1 than Psalm 2, even though Psalm 2 is one of the most frequently quoted psalms in our New Testament. And Psalm 1 outlines two ways that individuals can live. There is the way of the godly and there's the way of the ungodly. There's the way of the righteous, there's the way of the unrighteous. And we make choices. And those are the two choices before us this morning. Uh, Psalm 2 talks about not the way that individuals live, but the way that uh, two nations, or the two ways that nations can live. Uh, one of those ways is the way of rebellion, and the other is the way of joy-filled submission. And we'll see that clearly as we work our way through this psalm this morning. Uh, secondly, Psalm 2 is, a, is what is called a royal psalm. It has a, a, a kingly function. And on those occasions when the, and the people of Israel would come together and the king played a key role, perhaps even the occasion was revolving around the king, for example, think the coronation of a king, then it is suggested that this is a psalm that would be recited and that would be appealed to because it was a reminder that the king, the human king, served as a representative of the ultimate king who is God, God himself. We'll see that again in our passage this morning. And then thirdly, and linked very closely with the second idea that it's a royal psalm, that this psalm is, is a messianic psalm. The psalm relates to Jesus. It relates to the Messiah. This, of course, doesn't mean that everything in the psalm is, is about Jesus. Uh, the psalm is an occasional psalm, which simply means that there was an occasion that prompted the writing of the psalm. There, there was an historical context that gave rise to the psalm. There was a literal earthly human king who we would understand to be David and who was dealing with particular realities and in the context of that reality he expressed this psalm. But there are things within the psalm that David can't fulfill that they come to their fullest expression in the one who is David's greater son the Messiah himself. And so we'll observe that this morning as well. And so with that as the background, this relationship, two ways to live individually and as a nation, 
the fact that it has a kingly function, and the fact that it is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, the great Messiah. That's our background, and so let's jump in, and we'll just kind of work our way through the psalm and read it as, as we go, beginning with the first stanza here, verses 1 through 3. The psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Uh, This opening stanza reminds us that uh, the world is hostile to God. We're part of a world that's hostile to God and we're part of a culture whose agenda and whose values is very much at cross swords with the purposes of our God. And this is the world where God has placed us and has called us as followers of Jesus to live. That's our address. That's our residence. That's where we live today. In a world and in a culture that is at cross swords with the purposes of God in terms of its values. And that is why it's, it's challenging. Uh, that's why it is actually uh, difficult for us to live faithfully for the Lord. Uh, you probably experienced it this week. That's why so frequently it seems that we're swimming against the current, that we're going up the down escalator. Because as followers of Jesus, this is the world in which we are living in. And we are here to serve the Lord, but we are living in a world that has different purposes and a different agenda. I like the way another has described it when they say that as we seek to live for the Lord, there are, uh, there are no home games. There's no home games. It's as if every game we play, it's, we're on the road. And we've just come through these... Uh, Stanley Cup playoffs and as we were making our way through the various rounds we were watching Canadian teams and we were watching teams that were to the south of us it wasn't hard to make the observation that we have empty arenas and we have other arenas that are uh, almost filled to the capacity if not to capacity and certainly lots of people in them and then we get to the final rounds and we watch Montreal much to the chagrin of some of us Leaf fans and I know there's some of you here but we watched as that happened, as that unfolded, and the inability to really seize and to take full advantage of home turf. And I was reminded again of this reality. When it comes as followers of Jesus, we get no home games. They're all away games. We find ourselves in enemy turf. And the psalmist here says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain. They rage against the Lord and against his anointed. It's interesting that in Psalm 1 we have the righteous person and it describes the righteous person as one who, who meditates and muses on the word of God with the goal of being transformed and being changed. In Psalm 2 we have kings and we have rulers meditating and, and musing. They're contemplating together and how they can bring down the purposes of God and foil his rule. And as they do that, they're filled with rage. And when it says that they plot, that's the same word as, as meditate in, in chapter one or Psalm one. The righteous meditates on God. 
The wicked rulers, those leading the nations in rebellion against God, they meditate and they muse about how they can foil the purposes of God. And their hearts are filled with rage. You probably have noticed that we live in an age of rage, surrounded by rage. There's just ordinary rage, there's domestic rage, there's road rage, there's Twitter rage. Ed Stetzer has recently written this book entitled Christians in an Age of Rage. Outrage. How to bring our best when the world is at its worst. Rage permeates our culture, doesn't it? And even we as followers of Jesus are not exempt from that if we're not careful as we've witnessed throughout these past several months of COVID. But there's no rage that's quite as classic as the rage that has raged in the heart of man since sin entered the human race and alienated us from God. And the Bible tells us that when we are born into this world, that means you, that means me, that when we are born into this world, we're separated from God, we're hostile in mind, we are the enemies of God. And the good news this morning is that Jesus can change all that. And the reality is that Jesus is the only one who can change that. He is the one who can bring peace and who can bring reconciliation. He can bring that to you this morning. But until we embrace and experience his work of grace and giving us what we don't deserve, the forgiveness of sins and this intimate relationship with himself, we live in this state of separation and opposition to God. And we might sit here this morning and wish that that weren't the case, that that wasn't true. But the reality is that is our world. That's the nations and the people who lead them. And they're simply living out their identity when they align themselves against God and against his purposes. They're living under the spell and the control of the one who is the great enemy, Satan himself, who is the God of this world. And that's where every one of us lived at one point in time until Jesus makes that change. That's where we live. That's our address. That's our residence. And we see lots of evidence of that in our world around us, don't we? Living in this kind of a world and in a culture and in a context which is lined up against the ways of God and the purposes of God, it's lined up against God and it's lined up against his followers. At times it can be, make us feel uncomfortable. At times it can be overwhelming. At times it can even make us fearful. What really is going on? It begs the question, what should our response be? What should my response be as a follower of Jesus? And what should our response, our corporate response, be as a, as a community of followers of Jesus? I think this psalm helps us answer that question as we observe the response of our Lord. How does the Lord respond to this context? We take our cues from him. And as we look at his response and as we take our cues from him, it can help determine and guide you and I in our response this morning as well. And what we find beginning in verse 4 is that the Lord is unmoved by the opposition of a hostile world. That needs to give us comfort this morning. That our God is unmoved 
is unsettled. He's unshaken by a world that is hostile against him. Notice verse 4. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. And the Lord holds them in derision. He's unmoved. He is unfazed by the opposition of his detractors. And what a fascinating contrast we have between the first three verses and this fourth verse. There's riots. There's tumultuous events taking place on the earth as they try to rebel against God. But there's a calmness. There's a peaceful calm in the heavens. Because our God is unfazed. His response to the rebellious, arrogant words of the thoughts of the nation's rulers is not to be filled with fear. His inclination is not to run and to hide, not to retreat. Evidence of that is found in this phrase, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He sits. He's not even moved to get off his throne. No need for him to get off his throne and to further assess the threat, take better stock of the situation. No, he, he sits in the heavens and he laughs. I'll make no mistake about it, this is not a, a grandfatherly type of laugh. It's not the grandfather, the grandmother looking at the kids and saying, oh, kids will be kids, aren't they cute? It's not a knee slapper laugh as someone just cracked a big joke. Not that kind of a laugh. It's a lack of laugh of mockery and, and derision. It's the idea of, come on now, really? You serious? It's like your two, your two or three year old going to take dad on and, and wrestle. You might think in his own mind that he can take him down makes for a fun exchange, but at no moment is there ever a thought that this is going to happen. And take that same young fellow, 15, 16, 17, and we might have a different story, but not the two or three-year-old. The Lord says, come on now, really? You serious? You see, the actions of those who are lined up against God and leading in the nations in rebellion, they pose no threat whatsoever to our God. Their threats, their desires just expose the folly of their actions. Just like a Jonah, Old Testament prophet who thinks that he can thwart the purposes of God. And later on he'll write a book and it'll take the format of a satire and he'll say, don't be silly like I was. You see, we can sit back and we can say this morning how silly for leaders of nations to think that they can actually take on God, resist him. And you're right. It is silly. And then we ask ourselves, what is there in my life, what is there in your life right now where you might be resisting the ways of God? You know what God says. You know who he is. The temptation to resist. He or she might not be a follower of Jesus, but he's so charming, he's so good-looking, he's so caring, so gifted. She's so beautiful, she's so sweet. Uh, she just needs to be the one that I've been waiting for. 
This deal has the potential to put me ahead three or four years in terms of my bottom line. It's just elements that will be done, that will be done under the table. It will never hit the light of day at my portfolio and certainly will never see my, see my income tax. You see, it can be easy for us to resist the ways of God. And it can even be possible for us to deceive ourselves into thinking that it actually could be good for us such as the thinking of these kings and these rulers. But God is completely unmoved by the opposition and the threats of enemy nations. And so the first response is that he laughs. The second response is a word of rebuke that he gives, which we pick up in verse 5. And it's here that we're reminded that the Lord is unmoved because he has a plan that's firmly in place. Verse 5 says, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God knows what he's doing. He has it all figured out. And he is unmoved by the hostility of the world and its rulers who oppose him because he has a plan that is firmly, firmly in place. Our God is one who is incredibly patient Long-suffering, we know from Galatians 5, is a characteristic of the fruit of his spirit. But his patience and his long-suffering has an expiry date to those who insist on rebellion. And at the precise time, God's judgment and his wrathful anger will issue forth. After all, wicked opposition is a call and is an invitation for a divine response. And God is a God of action, but even here, it's not so much his actions, but rather it's even just his words that will spark fear in his detractors and his opponents. Sometimes it takes just a look. As parents, you know what that's like. Uh, here, it's, the Lord just speaks, and it produces fear. And that will happen in a future day. Uh, precisely when? The detail isn't given, but it will happen. But in the meantime, God doesn't need to be deterred by those who are his detractors, his opponents, because he has a plan firmly in place. And that plan firmly centers on the Lord's anointed, the Lord's appointed king. Notice verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God has a plan firmly in place that centers on his appointed king. This section of the psalm is permeated with uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. For those familiar with their Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7 is an important chapter. And it's there we see that God makes a special agreement with, with, with David, King David. Makes incredible promises to him. We refer to it as the, the Davidic covenant. He tells David, for example, that his throne will be established forever that those, the legitimate one who would sit on the throne of Israel would be of his seed, be one of his descendants. And in that uh, covenant, and as we see here in this psalm, there is an interplay between what relates to King David and what also ultimately relates to David's greater son, the Messiah. So that is the backdrop. Let's consider these next verses just a little further. In 2 Samuel 7, when God made this agreement, this covenant with David, he entered into a special relationship with Yahweh, David did. And that's what's in focus here in verse 7. 
When David says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said, and here's what the Lord said to David when he made that Davidic covenant. He said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's essentially a restatement of the promise in 2 Samuel 7 where we read the words God speaking says, I will be to David a father and he shall be to me a son. And these two expressions, you are my son, this day have I begotten you, or today have I begotten you, it speaks of a special relationship and it speaks of a special function. Those words, you are my son, speaks of David being the recipient of God's paternal love. It speaks of a closeness of a relationship that David enjoys with Yahweh, Jehovah, the eternal God. And then in typical Hebrew poetry, he restates the same truth, just a different way. He says, today I have begotten you. The word begotten doesn't mean to be born, but it's used in the figurative sense to again convey this idea that David has been brought into this special relationship with the Lord, and he's given this special assignment as king. And this is God speaking to David. The I here is emphatic when he says, you are my son today, I have begotten you. It's emphatic. It's Jehovah, it's Yahweh who is speaking. He says, I am the one who has done this. This is my idea. Because after all, we're talking about how God has a plan, right? And God is unmoved by the hostile world and the enemy nations because he has a plan. And this is his plan he's talking about. God doesn't need to be concerned by his detractors because he knows what he's doing. He has his plan in place. It's his idea. It wasn't David's idea. David was just the marvelous recipient of it. David enjoyed that special relationship and favor with God as God's son. And he had a special function as God's appointed king of Israel. David didn't apply for the job. You couldn't do that. He was selected by God. He was chosen by God and brought into this intimate relationship and given this assignment to be king over God's people. It was a special position, a special honor, sufficient to provoke and to elicit the envy, the envy and the jealousy of nations around him, so much so that they would oppose him. But their opposition need not shake him because in his special role and designation, God was on his side, and that's what we see in verses 8 through 9. God says to David, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God says, okay, just ask of me what you desire. I'll give it to you. This wasn't a mandate for David to build a selfish, imperialistic empire like the Babylonians or the Persians or the Assyrians. But rather it's the idea that whatever was necessary for David to provide security and peace to God's people because the responsibility of the king was to protect, to look after his people, provide security for them. David, ask of me whatever you need, whatever you want. However, it's here that these words cast a shadow that extends beyond the human experience of David and his kingship. And it's here that we see a, a much, to a much greater extent and to good degree that these words will be fulfilled not in David, but that will be fulfilled 
in a future day in David's greater son, the Messiah. You see, just as there was that occasion in 2 Samuel 7 where there was that public affirmation that God had brought David into this special relationship and assigned him this special function, this kingly function. And so also, with David's greater son, Jesus the Messiah, there would be that public declaration that God was up to something special with his son. And one of those we find in Acts chapter 13 from the words of the apostle. And it's after the rulers of the nation have had their day with Jesus and have crucified him. The apostle Paul speaks And he says, but God raised him, that is Jesus, from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem and are now witnesses to the people. And we bring you good news, the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled. In this resurrection he has fulfilled to their children by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second psalm. Catch it? You are my son. Today, I have begotten you. And Jesus today is God's anointed one, God's Messiah. And he is firmly in place as the one who is the center of God's plan and his program. On Jesus, on the Messiah, the program and the plan of God rests. And our God today does not need to be moved and shaken by whatever the intent of those who are his opponents, because he has a plan firmly in place, and it goes directly through, rests on his son, Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah. And concerning Jesus, he says, ask of me, the Messiah, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. He is the supreme one who is stronger than any force of opposition that can ever be mounted against him. He says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And his strength and his might and his dominion is here portrayed by his iron rod that demolishes, breaks down his opposition. Breaks down that opposition that here prides itself and deceives itself into thinking that it's actually strong and mighty enough to actually bring down the rule of God. But in reality, it's here portrayed as fragile and as breakable as a potter's vessel. Our God does not need to be faced and moved by those who are his opponents in a hostile world. His plan centers firmly, solidly in his son Jesus, the great Messiah. Hebrews reminds us that everything has been put under the feet of Jesus, under his control. It says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But one day, we will see that. Concerning the Messiah in the future day, the prophet Daniel says, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. God is not moved, friends, this morning. He's not shaken, he's not rattled by the opposition and the threats of a hostile world and hostile rulers. 
He's not moved, he's not unsettled, he's not shaken because he has a plan in place that centers in his son, his son, Jesus, his son who is the Messiah, who is supreme. Supreme in the affections of God and supreme in his dominion and power. And the good news from our passage today is that as we look around the world today with all the rage that we see, and as we contemplate a future, the good news is that for you and I, we don't need to be moved. We don't need to be shaken. We don't need to be unsettled either. On one condition. That we go with God and his plan. That we go with God and his plan. And that's the message of the last stanza, stanza verses 10 through 12. It encourages us with the truth that that we don't need to be moved by the opponents of God and the agenda of a hostile culture if we go with God and his plan, if we accept his invitation and his challenge and heed the warning of verses 10 through 12. We can be confident. His encouragement this morning is for us to go with the plan. Go with God and the plan. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Challenges the kings because as the king goes, so goes the people. Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly rekindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's an appeal, it's an invitation for, for us to bow the knees as be wise. Remember the psalmist in Psalm 4, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, literally no God for me. But the essence of the wise is that they bow the knee before the Lord. He says, serve the Lord with fear. It's an appeal, it's an invitation for full wholehearted devotion and serving God with reverence. Not just a verbal assent thing, but rather it's an appeal to bring our lives into alignment with that dominant idea that those who go with God are blessed, that those who resist experience his judgment. And finally, he says, kiss the son. You got all these, these terms. Be wise, serve the Lord with fear, and, and kiss the son, the symbol and emblem of, of submission, either kissing the hem of the master's garment or kissing the back of their hand. Submit to the Lord. And then there is that warning, the failure to acknowledge, failure to submit and to be loyal to the Lord means that you're lining up with those who are his opponents. And that's an invitation for a response from God and, and his judgment. But the psalmist says, don't do that. You can resist, but don't do that. Uh, there's two ways to live. Uh, the ways of the righteous, the ways of the wicked, the way of the godly, the way of the ungodly. Two ways for nations to live. There's the way of submission, there's the way of rebellion, and the psalmist says, don't do that. Go with God. Go with God. That's our appeal this morning. There's only two ways. Go with God. Life is filled with decisions. Life is filled with choices. Lesser important things, lesser consequences. There's not a greater choice. There's not a greater decision. 
than this one. Will you go with God? Or will you resist? The heartbeat of God is that we would bow the knee. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Take refuge this morning in the one who is supreme, who has a plan, and who will bring it all together. Go with God and his plan. God's plan, which centers on his son, is unmovable. God's plan, which centers on his son, is unmovable. And so also are we, when we are moved, to go with God and his plan.